0: Well, as Christians, we face a number of temptations related to living a life with a good conscience. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at our website, radical.net. In today's new sermon, David Platt explores the dangers of idolatry and sexual immorality. Ultimately, the six temptations found in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and beginning of chapter 11 are rooted in an inclination to worship ourselves more than God. So we are to ask ourselves what we can think, say, desire, and do in order to bring the most glory to God. Here's David Platt with a sermon titled Your Conscience and Common Temptations from 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11.
1: If you have a Bible, the Word of God, or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Feel free to use Table of Contents if you need to, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And while you're turning, I want to welcome those of you specifically at Loudoun and Prince William and Montgomery County, as well as other places where you're gathered online. It's good to be together around God's Word and more and more in person in some of our locations, with masks optional as of today, singing without a mask on for some feels good. So let me, let me give you, a, along those lines, a brief heads up on where things are going in the next couple of weeks. So today, we're going to conclude our series on the conscience, and then for the next two weeks, we're going to meet in our different locations, and pastors at different locations are going to be talking about reopening more and more for our church over the coming weeks and months this summer. So you'll hear about more opportunities for ministry. You'll hear about loosening restrictions at different times as we walk through God's Word and we think together about being the church as God has designed us to be, Uh, not distant from one another, but in closeness with each other and all that that involves so I'm really looking forward to the next couple of weeks. And Lord willing, the coming months as we move forward as a church family from this historic year in our world, then, Lord willing, we'll come back all together after our time at different locations and pick up where we leave off today in First Corinthians chapter 11 in a really important and oftentimes misunderstood passage on men and women in the church. With that said, we have a lot of ground and some awesome ground to cover today with major implications for our lives in First Corinthians chapter 10. So just to catch you up, if you've missed any of the weeks in this series on the conscience, we've now looked at four of six questions that we need to ask every day in different situations we face and decisions we make if we're going to live with a good, clean conscience, which we've seen is critical to experiencing intimacy with God and true success in life and unity in the church and critical to accomplishing mission in the world and living for what matters most in eternity. So we're going to look at the final two questions today that we need to ask if we're going to experience all those things. So let me start by reviewing those first four questions just so that we're all on the same page as we think about what it means to live with a good, clean conscience. So So you're taking notes. These are the four questions we've seen so far. One, what does the Bible say? It's the first question we need to ask, knowing we need to align our conscience, our sense of right and wrong with what God who created us and knows what is best for us, what he says in his word. But then when the Bible is not clear on exactly what to do in a certain situation, we need to ask a second question. What does my conscience say? So what do I sense as best as I can based on God's Word and God's Spirit in my life is right or wrong or good or best in a specific situation? Knowing we may come to some different conclusions when we ask that question, even as followers of Jesus who believe the Bible. But that's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 8 a few weeks ago, that we don't just need to think about ourselves. Instead, we need to ask a third question. How can I best build up other Christians? And there may be something we can do in good conscience, but if it will cause our brother or sister in Christ to stumble, then we don't do it. Instead, we choose to build them up in love. And then two weeks ago, we saw in 1 Corinthians 9, we need to ask a fourth question. How can I best lead non-Christians to Jesus? We saw how God calls us to reorient our consciences, rearrange our lives around how we can best lead people near us and far from us to Jesus. Now, in order to show you the fifth and sixth questions that we need to ask, I want us to read 1 Corinthians 10 and see how incredibly applicable this passage is to every one of our lives, no matter who you are, no matter how young or old you may be, no matter what you're going through in your life right now. But I want to warn you, as we read this chapter, you're going to think it's not applicable to your life. Because we're pretty far removed from the context in which 1 Corinthians 10 was written. First century Corinth. We're in 21st century America. But I want to show you today how God's Word is timeless. In order to see its timelessness, We have to step back into the shoes of the first people who are reading. Whenever we're studying God's Word, we've got to make sure to hear it from the perspective of those who were first hearing it in order to then understand the implications it has for our lives today. So let's let's set the stage by jumping back into that day. Imagine with me for a moment that you were living in first century Corinth. This city that was filled with temples to false gods dedicated to the worship of all kinds of idols. And these temples housed religious ceremonies that were dedicated to the worship of those idols. At the same time, those temples served as social gathering spaces for meetings, banquets, and even eating similar to restaurants today. So if you were going to eat out... And specifically, if you were going to eat meat out, because that's where meat was prepared as food in one of those temples, then you were likely going to eat at one of those temples. Or if you go to the marketplace to get meat to cook in your home, that meat in the marketplace was almost always prepared in one of those temples. Or if you were to go to a neighbor's home to eat, and they were to set meat before you, that meat was likely prepared in one of those temples. You're a Christian in 1st century Corinth who knows there's only one true God. All of these idols are false gods. Yet any time you eat meat, it's somehow going to be intertwined in some way with the worship of idols. So what do you do? Do you eat meat in that temple restaurant or not? Do you buy meat from that marketplace? Or what do you do with the meat that's put in front of you in your unbelieving neighbor's house when they see that food as a form of worship to an idol? Now, this is that point where you might think, okay, that feels ancient to me. Like, what does this have to do with us? And the answer is everything. Because 2,000 years later, we're just asking different questions. Like, what kind of music do you put on your playlist? only Christian, some secular? Where do you draw the line? What kind of movies or TV should you watch? Or should you watch it at all? What level of alcohol is appropriate to drink? What kind of party should or should you not go to? What should you expose or not expose your kids? Or yourself to in public school. I could keep going on with a million examples, small and big decisions that we make every day that the Bible doesn't give a specific answer to. So what do we do? And in these verses in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, God is teaching us to make these decisions with a good, clean conscience in ways that lead to intimacy with him and to living for what matters most in the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we saw that as a Christian in first century Corinth, yes, you could eat meat in one of those temples as long as, as a restaurant, as long as eating there didn't go against your conscience or cause your brother or sister in Christ to go against their conscience. But here was the problem. Some of these Christians in Corinth had taken that a step too far. And they had gone from just eating at the temple like it's a restaurant, to being involved in religious ceremonies dedicated to idol worship. And they didn't seem to be bothered by that. So Paul writes these words we're about to read to these Corinthian Christians. We're going to read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul talks about how they were giving in to idol worship. And then he addresses what they should do in the marketplace or in somebody's home. So follow along, starting with me in verse 1, and then I just want to show you how practically helpful and needed these verses are for every single one of us. Again, no matter how young or old you may be and whatever you're walking through in your life. So hear the timeless word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor." for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience if i partake with thankfulness why am i denounced because of that for which i give thanks so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do all to the glory of god give no offense to jews or to greeks or to the church of god just as i try to please everyone in everything i do not seeking my own advantage but that of many that they may be saved and 1 corinthians chapter 11 verse 1 it says be imitators of me as I am of Christ. All right, that was a lot. So let me summarize the practical takeaway of what we just read for first century Christians in Corinth. So the Bible is basically saying here, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, yes, you can eat meat, sacrifice to idols in a temple where it's basically like eating in a restaurant, as long as it's not a part of a pagan religious ritual. But no, you cannot eat there if you You're causing a fellow Christian to sin and absolutely do not eat in that temple as part of a pagan religious ritual. You're worshiping demons when you do that because it's demons who are behind idols or false gods. So in no circumstance should you do that. And then when you're in the marketplace, don't go asking a million questions about where the meat came from. Just buy the meat and eat it in your home. Totally fine. And eat in somebody else's home, including a non-Christian, unless... Someone at that meal points out how this meat is dedicated to an idol and believes that you are worshiping that idol by eating that meat. If that's the case, don't eat it. What I love about these specific instructions to Christians in first century Corinth is how they are grounded in what God had said to his people centuries before, way back in the Old Testament. This is part of the timelessness of God's Word that I want you to see here. Because God's instructions to his people in the first century go all the way back to his instruction to people centuries before that. And that's what informs God's instructions to you and me in the 21st century. And his instructions are the same at every point. This is what we read this last week in our Bible reading, Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should change his. His mind. God doesn't change his mind. God's word to his people is unchanging. This is so good because what this means is what God spoke to his people 3,000 years ago and 2,000 years ago is what God is speaking to his people today, which means you can bank your life on this word. It is unchanging. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. What else can you read tomorrow morning that gives you that kind of rock in your life? Nothing. Like read this word, meditate on it, memorize it, let it soak in and bank your life on it because it will last forever. So see how what God is saying to his people here in first century Corinth and to us today is based on what God has been doing among his people throughout history It's really summarized when you look at verses 11 through 13, right in the middle of this chapter. Look back there. The Bible says, what happened to them. So God's people years ago was an example that was written down for what purpose? For our instruction. Don't you love this? Like God made sure that what happened when people of Israel were fleeing Egypt was written down for our help today, for your help today, so that we might be warned to take heed lest we fall in the same ways they did. God made sure that what happened to them was written down because you and I are facing the exact same temptations that they gave into back then like, this is so important we have this tendency to think we're advanced in so many different ways than people three thousand years ago on the outskirts of Egypt were or two thousand years ago in Corinth were but listen to verse 13 no temptation has overtaken you that is not what that is not common to man In other words, the questions or decisions may be different today, but the temptations are the same. They're common to all people throughout all history. We need to learn about how they fell in order that we might take heed, lest we do the same thing. We need to be instructed by them. So what are these temptations that are common to all people throughout history. In other words, what are the temptations that they were facing 3,000, 2,000 years ago that you and I will face this week? And I wanna show you in this passage six common temptations that are gonna lead to the final two questions we need to ask if we're gonna live with a good, clean conscience. we're gonna hit these temptations pretty quick Each one of them could be a sermon, really a series in and of themselves, but I want you to see them all together. I would encourage you to write them down, realizing that God is saying in his word right now to us, these are temptations that are common. No matter how young or old you are, what you're going through, you will face these temptations this week. So let's see them. First, we are all tempted To celebrate salvation from God without giving devotion to God. To celebrate salvation given to us from God without giving devotion of our lives to God. So this is the very beginning of 1 Corinthians 10. When God talks about what we've been reading about in our Bible reading as a church family in Exodus, Leviticus, and now Numbers. So if you're taking notes, you don't have this written down. I'll come back to the screen in a minute. But 1 Corinthians 10 says, remember how God's people were under the cloud, led by God in a cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. How they passed through the sea. They were delivered out of Egypt and delivered from the Egyptian army about to overtake them as God split the Red Sea in half. How they ate spiritual food. God provided food from heaven. How they drank spiritual drink. God provided water from rocks in the desert. And verse 4 goes on to talk about how that rock was Christ. Basically, they they were seeing a picture of God's provision that would be ultimately fulfilled in the fountain that flows from Jesus. The whole picture, though, is they had seen and experienced such grace from God. Bread from heaven, water from rocks, a pillar of cloud leading them every day, providing for them all along the way. Yet, after all of that grace, salvation from slavery in Egypt, after all of that, this is what we're reading in Numbers right now. After all that, they did not trust God or obey God. Instead, after all of that, they rebelled against God and they were overthrown. They were scattered to die in the wilderness instead of devoting themselves to God. And God is saying to these Corinthian Christians, do you realize you're tempted to do the same thing today? To come to the Lord's table, to feast on God's grace to you and Jesus and to turn around And to worship idols, and even to use the Lord's Supper as a cover-up for your idolatry, thinking, well, if I go to church and take the Lord's Supper, then I'm good. doesn't matter what I do during the week. And God says, it does matter. God says, don't do it. Don't disconnect. Salvation from me, from devotion to me. Now see, think about it, how we are tempted to do the exact same thing today, like in this room, wherever we're gathered right now. Do you see how this is the brand of Christianity that so many people have bought in 21st century America? Go to church or watch online. Go through religious motions. Pray, prayer, receive God's forgiveness. Then go on living however you want. And God says, that's not Christianity. That's idolatry. That's worship of the world under the guise of worshiping God. Don't be fooled. That kind of life leads to ruin in this world. You'll waste your life that way. Don't disconnect salvation given to you from God, from devotion to God. These go together. You have been saved. Why? To know and love and worship and walk with and obey God. Because this is where life is found in utter, complete, total devotion to God. Don't disconnect these two. But we're all tempted this week to celebrate salvation from God, even in this gathering and disconnected from devotion to God when we wake up in the morning tomorrow. It's one temptation, it's common to all of us. A second temptation common to all of us, we're all tempted to turn what is good into a God. We're all tempted to turn that which is good into a God. Again, I'll come back to this on the screen in a minute, but see it in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. These things took place as example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now, the challenge is we hear the word idolatry and we think statues and idols, you know, what people back then or in other parts of the world today bow down to, but we don't do that. We don't have idols in our homes that we go and pray to, bow down to. This one, I want you to follow this with me because even here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible's talking about how food is a good gift from God that can be used for the glory of God or it can be used for the worship of false gods. And Good gifts can be used for the worship of false gods. And this is so significant. Please listen closely here. When we think about idolatry and sin, we usually, when we think about sin, we think about bad things, right? Like lying, stealing, cheating, whatever it might be. That's that's sin. And yes, those things are sin. But has it ever occurred to you that sin is not just doing bad things? that sin also includes taking that which is good and turning it into a God. Now, this is vintage Romans chapter one. We're all tempted to worship created things rather than the creator. When you realize this, you start to realize that so many good things can become a God or an idol in our lives. We can take good things like love, or sex, or material possessions, or work, a career, or sports, or fitness, or a family, or achievements in work, or school, or getting se- accepted into a school. All of these things I just listed are good things. But when our lives become consumed with them, such that we begin to center around them, thinking this is where fulfillment or joy or security or identity or safety are found in looking a certain way or being with a certain person or having a certain status or achieving a certain goal to the point where we begin to pursue those things more than we are pursuing God. The point where we begin to desire those things more than we desire God. In other words, to the point where we begin to worship those things more than we worship God. Let me just ask you, what good things in your life are you tempted to turn into God's? What good things in your life are you tempted to love and desire more than God? Ask that question and as you do, examine the evidence in your life where you spend your time, your energy, where your emotions are most caught up, where your mind is most focused, Is God the center there, or are good things in your life the center there? We're all tempted this way, and we need to realize it. We need to realize when we think about idols, like our mind immediately begins to think about bad things when the reality is that's almost never the case. The reason things become idols in our lives is usually because they're good things. The more good they are, in other words, the greater they are, the more likely we are to begin to look to them, love them, desire them, work for them, worship them instead of God. And we desperately need to realize that good gifts make lousy gods. Created things and people were never intended to provide the meaning and identity and ultimate satisfaction or unending joy that our creator alone can provide mark it down idols always disappoint anything or anyone that you ultimately hope in or look to in this world will at some point let you down Because that thing or that person is not designed to carry that weight. Only God can carry that weight. Idols always disappoint and idols ultimately destroy. If you look to good things instead of the God who gives them for hope and joy and meaning, you will find yourself empty in the end. This is so important for us to beware. We are all tempted to turn what is good into a God in ways that lead to all kinds of other sins. So keep going. Third temptation common to all of us. I'll read it to you in 1 Corinthians 10, 7 and 8. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So that's quoting from Exodus chapter 32 when idolatry led God's people into sexual immorality. When it says play right there, the language is specifically talking about sexual immorality, which is why the very next verse says we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Again, that's the story of Exodus chapter 32. You can read more about it there, but here's a clear temptation that's common to all of us. Number three, we are all tempted to choose sexual immorality over sexual purity. And we talked about this in depth in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. How sexual immorality is any and all sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And we are all, all of us, tempted to choose that over God's design for sexual purity. This is common to all of us. I remind you, we had a whole series on that. There's a whole list of resources on our website, mcleanbible.org slash sexuality, where you can find help amidst all kinds of temptations in different ways to sexual immorality. But here in this text, God is reminding us today that sexual immorality and idolatry go together. We saw this in our Bible reading this morning. It's like God is shouting to us today in Numbers 25, how sexual immorality is born in a heart that goes aside from the worship of God. So guard your heart and your mind and your desires at all times, knowing we are all tempted to sexual immorality instead of sexual purity. Keep going. Then in verse 9, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Bible says we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. There's a fourth temptation to use that exact language, we are all tempted to test God instead of trusting God. We read this story this week in Numbers 21. God's people became impatient with God and began questioning his provision for them. It's what people do when things are not going the way we think they should or hoped they would. or we don't understand why this or that is happening. I'm really thankful for how so many of you have continually asked Heather and me about our adoption process that was put on pause. Last year, when three days before we were about to get on a plane to go pick up our, at that time, three-year-old son, we got a call saying his country was shutting down in light of an unknown virus there, and now, 16 months later, we're still waiting to go and pick up our son and bring him into our family And it's been really good to read Numbers and remember, don't lose trust in God. And don't doubt God's power. Don't doubt God's love. Don't doubt his wisdom, his provision, his timing. In so many ways, In so many points in each of our lives, we are tempted to test God instead of trusting God. And related to that, verse 10 says, we must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Likely a reference to Korah's rebellion that we write about in Numbers chapter 16 when God's people grumbled against him and the leaders that God had given to them. So temptation number five that's common to us, we are all tempted to grumble against God instead of being grateful to God. How tempting is it to complain to God about what you or I don't have instead of being grateful to God for what you and I do have? I was on a phone call this week with someone, and I, I just I asked how they were doing. And they said, better than I deserve. And I thought, how true is that? And not just for that person. <laughs> uh, realize the way that comes across. I really like this person. I think they're great. But anyway, but I thought about it for my, my own life like, yeah, that's true. That's so true. And I, I, just, I was on a date earlier this week with Heather. We were, we were talking about how when we first met in high school, all the dumb things I did, which I will not list out. I'll list out one of them that will that I'm so ashamed to say. Like, I I broke up with Heather on the day her grandmother died. Like, is that not horrible? What was I thinking? Like, yeah, wow. That, like, that's, it's like, man, I thought I'd done dumb things. Like, wow, yeah, you... So in case there was any doubt, I don't deserve to be married. Like, every time you say, how are you doing, David? I'm going to say that, and you're going to think, you're right. Better than you deserve. And then one of my sons and I were sharing the gospel with a couple of Uber drivers earlier this week who don't know Jesus, and I thought, who am I? Like, I don't deserve to have eternal life and joy in Jesus. And there were other points, just simple things this week. Meeting with people from church or some friends who were in town, and I was just sitting there thinking, like, I deserve to be in hell right now. Here am I, like, enjoying friends in Christ and talking together about how to get the greatest news in the world to more people in the world. Like, I don't deserve this. Yet with all this grace that God has given to me, I am... And we all are tempted to grumble at so many different points instead of being grateful. 1 Thessalonians 5, at all times. And then, so after this, 1 Corinthians 10 starts talking about the Lord's Supper, and it's so good. Verse 16 says, this cup of blessing, talking about the cup we drink in the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ This bread that we break is not a participation in the body of Christ. And that word participation there in the original language of the New Testament is koinonia. It's the most common word in the New Testament for community. That's what this meal, the Lord's Supper, is about. There's a reason it's called communion. Because it represents communion, community, with God through the body and the blood of Jesus And when Christians eat this bread, drink from this cup, we're in a very real way feasting on the grace of God, enjoying communion with God that's made possible by what Jesus did on the cross. So if you're not a follower of Jesus right now, I invite you to listen really closely here. The Bible teaches that we are all created by God, yet we've all sinned against God. All of us have turned aside from God and his ways to ourselves and our own ways. And our sin separates us from communion with God. And if we die in this state of separation from communion with God, we will spend eternity separated from communion with him. Eternity experiencing the judgment due our sin. But the good news of the Bible is that God loves us and God has come to us, God has made a way for that communion to be restored. God has come to us in the person of Jesus who lived a life of no sin. And then even though he had no sin to die for, he chose to die. He gave his body and shed his blood on a cross so that anyone who trusts in him will be forgiven of all their sin and restored to communion with him forever and ever. Now I invite you, put your trust in Jesus and experience communion with God for all of eternity. It's the most important decision you can ever make in your life. And you can make it today. And when you do, and for all who have, so follow this, when you experience this communion with God, and you celebrate that even in taking the Lord's Supper, remember this sixth temptation that is common to all of us, follow it. We are all tempted to exchange this communion with God for compromise with the world. In other words, we're tempted to take communion, celebrate the Lord's Supper, this communion we have with God as we gather with the church, but then leave here and go out And do what they were doing in Corinth, worship idols, false gods, in the world. Like They were doing it by participating in those religious feasts. You and I are tempted to do it in all the ways we've talked about. Like, think about it. We're celebrating communion with God. It makes no sense for us to then leave this place and go running out in the world, running after money like everybody else does. Makes no sense. We have communion with God. He owns everything. What does this world have that we need? And we don't celebrate communion with God and worship and then run out in the world running after positions and possessions and sex and success or this person or that thing looking for meaning and joy and satisfaction and identity and security and those things when we have all of those things in God more than everything in this world offers put together don't exchange communion with God for compromise with the world don't do it but you'll be tempted to do it all week long this week I'll be tempted to do it all week long this week. Don't do it. Walk every day in communion with God. Live out of the overflow of communion with God. Don't compromise with this world. Which then leads to how the whole chapter ends. In a sense, with a summary of all that we've seen about a life marked by a good, clean conscience. Focus not just on ourselves, but on others. Verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Verses 32 and 33, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God. That's pretty much everybody. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many others' advantage, that they may be saved. So live for the good of other believers. Live for the good of unbelievers. And I love this first verse of 1 Corinthians 11 that summarizes it all. Live like Jesus. Be imitators of me as I am imitating Jesus. And I love how attainable this is. The Bible saying here, you, I, we all can experience the life of Jesus in us on a daily basis. That is, that is possible for you this week, all week long, to experience the life of Jesus in you, for us to show each other what that looks like as we live. we, We saw this from the very first week in the series on conscience, how Jesus is the only way to a clean conscience and the only way to living with a good conscience. So we ask these questions on a daily basis in our lives. We've seen them. What does the Bible say? Two, what does my conscience say? Three, how can I best build up other Christians? Four, how can I best lead non-Christians to Jesus? And now, 1 Corinthians 10 has given us two final questions we need to ask, particularly in light of the common temptations we face. So here they are. Question number five, we need to ask, in every decision we make, every question we face, how can I best guard against sin? So in 1 Corinthians 10, God is saying to us right now, today, as his church, realize that as you make decisions, you will be tempted all this week in so many ways, specifically these ways, just like my people have been tempted throughout history. And you are not stronger or wiser than any of them. None of you are. You, I, can fall in the exact same ways. So in our decision making, let us be on guard. That's what God's saying to us. Like the Christians in Corinth had gone from eating in a temple like a restaurant to participating in a religious ritual to an idol because they weren't on guard. And God said to them then what he's saying to you right where you're sitting right now, me right where I'm standing right now, God is saying, be on guard. And your music or movie choices in your professional life, in your social life, In your family life, in all the moments you spend and decisions you make as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, a single adult, a married adult, a senior adult, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, ask what is the best way to guard against sin. Knowing, first. Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. That is we fight and guard against sin. My three favorite words in this whole chapter. God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you. Like hear this right where you're sitting right now. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation he will also provide you the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Is that not good news? There is no temptation you will face this week that you cannot overcome because there is no temptation you will face this week alone. God is faithful. The God of the universe is with you. He will strengthen you. He will help you as you keep your eyes on him, as you trust in him, as you live for him. Which leads right to the last question we need to ask when making decisions Facing situations, temptations, comes straight from 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It could not be any clearer. Question number six, in every situation we face or decision we make, how can I most glorify God? What can I think and say and desire? It will bring the most glory to God. You ask that question on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. We ask that question, all of us, on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis. By the power of Jesus in us, we are on our way to a good, clean conscience and all the fruit that flows from that intimacy with God, true success in life, unity as church, mission in the world, and living together for what matters most. This week... And what matters most, the next 10 trillion years. Let's, let's live with that kind of conscience. So will you bow your heads with me? I want to lead us to pray for God's help amidst all these common temptations. But before I do that, I would be remiss if I didn't ask every single person within the sound of my voice. Fundamentally, do you have communion with God through faith in Jesus? Have you put your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sin, to restore you to relationship with God? And if the answer to that question is not a resounding yes in your heart, then I invite you right now, right where you're sitting, just to pray to God and say, God, I know that I have sinned against you, that I am separated from you by my sin. But today I believe that Jesus died on a cross and he rose from the dead so that I could be forgiven. God, please forgive me. Please restore me to communion with you. I trust you to lead my life as Lord of my life. The Bible says you call on God to save you in this way. He will, by faith, when you do and for all who have, then we pray, God, help us based on your faithfulness to us to walk faithfully with you. God, we want to experience all that communion with you involves. We want to dedicate ourselves completely to you. We don't want to turn anything, any of your good gifts into God's. They're all a reflection of you and your greatness as the giver of all good gifts. Help us to worship you alone, trust in you alone, look to you above all, desire you above all, to choose sexual purity over sexual immorality. Every day this week, the next week and the next, Lord, help us to trust you and not to grumble against you or test you. Be grateful for all the grace you poured out in our lives. Help us to take heed, learn from those who've gone before us, and to stand this week based on your strength, your life, Lord Jesus, in us. May it, may it be true of us that everything we do, whether we're eating breakfast or drinking in a break during work or Working in this way or that way, playing in this way, whatever we do, help us to do it all to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Well, it wasn't too long ago when David Platt was fresh off of a trek through some of the highest mountains and remotest villages in the world, seeing some of the most. Urgent physical and spiritual needs imaginable. And that experience led to him writing the book, Something Needs to Change, a call to make your life count in a world of urgent need. And people continue to write in letting us know how this book has radically changed their life and perspective around all that God wants to do in their lives. And so that's why we are excited today to announce that Something Needs to Change is now available in paperback wherever you get your books. So please, if you haven't already, get your copy of Something Needs to Change, a call to make your life count in a world of urgency. That's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us at Radical.net.